You are listening to the APSI Podcast, the association of people supporting employment first, with your host, Chris Davies. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the Minnesota APSI video podcast. Uh, we've been on a little bit of summer break, you could say, uh, for the last few months, but we're so glad to be back and, and very excited uh, for our guest today. Everybody can see him there. That's Bob Nemec. Say hi, Bob. Hi there. And we will uh, we'll form formally introduce you, Bob, and all your glory here in just a moment. But uh, before, we, before we do that, I'd like to just remind everybody uh, a little bit about Minnesota APSI and the podcast series. Uh, this is our, our fifth video podcast. And we've already got some ideas for our next one uh, in a month or two. And we appreciate, you know, all you uh, regular uh, viewers and listeners and uh, anyone new, you know, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. If you don't know much about uh, the organization APSI, uh, which as it happens, we're going to learn uh, quite a bit about today, especially some of the origins and, and history uh, Bob has been involved uh, in in uh, a lot of the early uh, formations of, of APSI. Um, we are an action-oriented organization. Uh, we exist to bring people together to raise expectations so that people with disabilities can be employed, contribute, and assume their roles and responsibilities as citizens in their communities. We believe that employment is the same wage, standards, responsibilities, expectations, and opportunities available to any working age adult. One person at a time, employment is the avenue out of poverty and isolation. That is what we believe. Uh, and Bob, does that, uh, do those words sound familiar to you? Sure do. Yeah, yeah, they sure do. Uh, that is at Minnesota APSI's purpose statement, and Bob actually was uh, one of the people that was integral in, in writing that. We wrote it at a strategic planning session a few years back, and I remember Bob was there. Uh, so let's get on to, to meeting our guest today, uh, Bob Nemec. Um, what can I say? Or, you know, I, I can't, if I said everything I wanted to say about Bob, uh, and, and I mean positive things, of course. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would take the whole hour here. Uh, but I've known Bob for um, since 1997 when I started in the field. And, and Bob uh, has been in the field for uh, even longer than that. When did you actually start in the field, Bob? 1980. 1980. Okay. So Bob's been in the field since 1980. I've had the pleasure of working directly uh, with him at Caposia. Uh, when I started at Caposia in 1997, I worked directly with Bob. And over the years, we've had the opportunity to work together on many micro as well as macro uh, projects and, and uh, you know, side sidebars, if you will. Uh, Bob has been a pioneer in, uh, in uh, the field of supported employment and, and now customized employment. Uh, he has uh, impacted countless uh, um, numbers of people uh, in the field, uh, professionals as well. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, very happy to tell you that he is one of my key mentors, and uh, I know I would not be sitting here uh, talking to you if it wasn't for Bob. So welcome, Bob. Great to have you. Thanks, Chris. That was really nice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh current days, Bob is uh, a trainer for uh, Griffin Hammes and Associates and, and is also very well known as uh, and renowned trainer, not only nationally, but uh, internationally. Isn't that right, Bob? Canada. Canada. Singapore, okay. Spain. <laughs> they count. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that counts. They count. So, uh, so let's, let's get into it. You know, we're, we're, uh, I'm excited to, uh, to learn from Bob today. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard some of the stories, but uh, sometimes I feel like I'm hearing for the first time and we're going to learn uh, from Bob some of the, the early days, you know, of supported employment and, um, and the formation of APSI, the Association for People Supporting Employment First. 
And, you know, so tell us about those early days, you know, in the 1980s, I was literally growing up, you know, I was a teenager, I graduated from high school in 1987. And while I was doing all those things, uh, you were, you were a part of, uh, you know, some pretty special things with pretty, uh, pretty special group of people. Tell us about those days, Bob. Well, yeah, um, I'll just give one little piece of background, I think, for folks, and that is that my my college degree is in technical theater. I you know built scenery and lighted shows and worked professionally for quite a while before I accidentally got into this field, and uh, which is a story that I like to share with people because um, the, I believe that careers are accidental for the most part. I and mean, Chris, you could attest to that, you know. Uh, but um, but I got into this. It, it, you know, in 1980, because a friend of mine, uh, a guy that I knew, uh, thought I might, might be good. So I did that. And, and I worked in um, sheltered workshop in southeastern Indiana, and then uh, moved to Auburn, Alabama, where my wife was in grad school. And I worked at a school for people with disabilities on the Alabama Georgia state line. And then um, was recruited to come up to a town called Anderson, Indiana, which is just a little bit north of Indianapolis to um, run the workshop there. And, um, you know, what my friend who, and he hired me to do that job as well. But um, what, what he knew was that my um, background in training in, in technical theater you know, required a lot of planning. It required, you know, being able to put things together and to manage people. So he thought it would be a good fit. So I took that job. It was a couple of years later that my friend Ron Rucker, who has passed away since, um, saw a guy named Lou Brown. And Lou Brown's an important guy. I mean, Lou um, was from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and he was part of that early vanguard of people that uh, in the you know early 80s that um, helped you know conceive supported employment, uh, um, and and so Ron saw Lou and Lou made a big impression on him. At that time, what Lou was talking about was something called a workshop without walls. Uh, so uh, and then later on, Madeline Will, who was the uh, director of, of the Office of Special Ed and Rehabilitative Services. Uh, coined the term supported employment. And, the, and, and so when Ron was talking to me about, about this, that we had this workshop without walls and people would go and work in regular jobs and all that, I, you know, I said, you're crazy. You know, no, but that just, that ain't going to happen. And I had all kinds of reasons why I didn't think that was going to happen. And um, so we were, we had a pretty big workshop and, and a lot of industrial kind of semi-industrial stuff. He sent me down to Miami to a, a niche conference, a national industries for the severely handicapped, and, and uh, theoretically to learn how to bid on government contracts. Mm -hmm. That was sort of the ploy that he was using. I, I didn't know, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went down there and it was a big deal. I mean, you know, it was, on, it was in Miami. It was, um, you know, they, they really put out, put out the dog, man. I'll tell you, you know, it was a lot of military guys there and big shots and and so first class but i went to a, a an opening session that was presented by a guy named bob persky and i don't know how many of the listeners or the viewers know who bob persky was but he was an influential guy and he his wife um drew uh pencil drawings of, of people particularly with down syndrome i think he had a uh, a son or a daughter had Down syndrome. And anyway, so Bob Persky did this presentation at this conference of all these workshop guys. And he um, was talking about, about community-based stuff or just the community. And I'm sitting there, you know, with a cup of coffee and a donut or whatever, thinking, well, this guy's making a whole lot of sense, you know? So, so you know, it, it just sort of percolated for a while. Then later on in that conference, maybe even the same day, I, um, there was a general session in the afternoon that was one of those point counterpoint sessions, right? So, you know, any any of the um, you know people who watched the original 
editions of Saturday Night Live will understand the point counterpoint thing or early 60 minutes. So on the one side, you had this guy from a big workshop who had all this stuff going on and he was making furniture for the government. And on the other side, you had Bob Persky. And in the hall was a big meeting room, you know, like a ballroom. And it was, was two, two rows of, um, of chairs and an aisle down the middle. And on the one side where this guy from the workshop was, that's where all the, all the people were sitting. And on the other side, there was hardly anybody sitting there, right? And I was, of course, on the side with all the guys, right? Um, you know, planning about what we we're going to go out and drink that night or some, something like that. And as the point counterpoint continued, I literally crossed over. I, I got up and walked over to the other side of the aisle. And then when I got back wow. um, to, uh, um, to Indiana and my boss, Ron, said, uh, tell me about it. And I said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. This is, this is just weird. This is wrong uh, um, or whatever. And, and, and he looked up at me and said, I was hoping that would happen. So his, his whole goal was to kind of mess with my head and see if, what would happen. But anyway, so that was in, in maybe 1981, 82 or something. No, it was probably a little later than that, but it um, doesn't matter. Um, and, uh, and then Ron took a job here in Minnesota and um, at what was then called the Washington County Developmental Learning Center, uh, which was a mouthful for a receptionist to answer the phone. And um, and um, he called me up and he said, why don't you come up here and do this? You know, uh, run this program, run the supported employment program. And uh, we were living in a pretty um, not a progressive town in, uh, in Indiana there, uh, um, just a few miles away from the birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan, you know? And so we thought, well, maybe, <laughs> Maybe it was time to get out of there, you know, and uh, and so we moved to St. Paul and uh, and started uh, a, um, a supported employment program. Applied for a grant. So in 1984 and then 85, particularly when they really were awarded, um, I think it was 85, maybe 86. But anyway, um, there were these things called um, systems change grants, and I think 15 states maybe more, I, that's, I can't remember, uh, particularly were, were awarded those grants and Minnesota was one. So then individual organizations would apply to, um, primarily it was a, a house at Boca Rehab to get a systems change grant. And, um, and so this was the introduction of supported employment you know, to Minnesota. And, and there were five recipients of those grants here in Minnesota. Uh, Rise Incorporated was one of them. Um, we were Washington County, which later became Eastern River Resources. Kaposia was one. There was an organization in Wilmer, I think. Uh, and I can't remember who the fifth one was, but, um, and so the deal was that they were bringing in all these people from all over the country, the thought leaders at the time. And we, we, you know, we had access to all this training. So it's not just leadership that had access, but we could bring our staff, our job developers, you know, and really begin the process of, of making this changeover, right, to, to this. And, and we adopted a, uh, at, at where I was, we adopted a, a one person at a time approach. And we were the only ones that did that. Uh, we're just, we're not doing any group placement we're not doing any sub-minimum wage, uh, and we're going one person at a time, and and that was that was just the way we wanted to do it, and we persevered and did it that way. At the time, uh, the um, uh, sort of the benchmarks that we were supposed to hit for individual uh, job seekers was twenty hours a week at minimum wage or better. Okay. And this is and in 1985 reason, you're talking, Bob, is that right? Uh, 86. 86. Still yeah. way, way ahead of, well, sadly yeah. to say, but way ahead of your time, but yeah. way overdue as well. Yeah. And, you know, and, and those benchmarks, like I said it was 40 hour, or 20 hours a week at minimum wage. And I realized later that that wasn't an arbitrary number. 20 hours a week at minimum wage at that time kept somebody under SGA for right. Social Security. 
-hmm. so so it really had some design to it and and you know so those are the targets and we hit them and then um later on uh, um so so then this association called APSI, um, the Association for Persons in Supported Employment, emerged out of uh, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. And, um, and uh, um, Kathy McNulty, who was at Kaposia at the time, was on the original board. Um, I got the newsletter and I said, this, is, this sounds pretty good. So we joined in like 1988. And um, so that began this whole process of of broadening the um, you know the scope and the reach of what was happening in supported employment, and like I said, it was twenty hours a week, minimum wage or better, and we hit that. The first APSI conference was in Denver in nineteen ninety, and um, they had a session there, uh, and it was a guy from RSA who was doing the session, and what was happening was the rehab counselors, the PR counselors were reluctant to use their money for supported employment, even though they could, because uh, this notion that uh, a job was not, might not be permanent, right? That somebody might get, get a job and decide, you know, I don't like this job or they lose it for whatever reason and they're coming back, you know, and that just didn't happen in those days. And so, so they created a, a whole separate a funding pot for supported employment called Title VI East. And, and when the Title VI, sorry, um, stuff was initiated, it also eliminated that 20 hour a week uh, minimum wage requirement. And, and it said something more like it had to make sense for the individual in their individual, the IWRP, the Individual Written Rehabilitation Plan. And so somebody could get a job and work for an hour a week at sub-minimum wage, and that was going to be okay. It wasn't okay with me. Right? And so, and uh, me for, for some folks, it's just other, you know, and that wasn't just you and me, you know, uh, mm -hmm. feeling that way. A lot of people did. And, and, and so many of them were at apps. And so, um, so APSI was really a fledgling organization. And, and that, that uh, conference in Denver um, was really monumental because it was at a hotel called the Adams Mark, which was a, a big hotel. So this is 1990, right? And, and the whole, you know, Denver's obviously changed a, a lot downtown, but uh, it was one, it, um, if you're familiar with Denver, there's a 16th street, which is runs from this hotel all the way to Coors Field where the Rockies play. And it's a pedestrian uh, mall that runs it. There's a shuttle, uh, like a trolley that runs by, you can catch and all that. But anyway, anyway, so it's a big hotel and, and APSI was the only organization doing anything at that, at that particular hotel. So there were, I think 300 uh, people registered. And what happened was and they had 300 walk-ups. So, I mean, think about that. I mean, wow. just, just the logistical nightmare of, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? Well, fortunately, because the hotel had a con was a conference center kind of place, they had, they had extra space. <laughs> and so, and so then, it, then it became with the APSI leadership going around saying, who can do this? Who can do that, right? I mean, so, so they're recruiting people to, you know, uh, to ad lib sessions, essentially, extemporaneous, you know, that kind of thing. I wasn't one of them. I was just a guy there, you know, trying to figure it out. And um, but it was it was such a powerful experience because you go to a session, somebody'd be there. Maybe it was David Mank. Maybe it was Dale DeLeo. You know, I mean, uh, Tom uh, Tom Bellamy or Paul Wayman. You know, the big the big shots or right? the guys that were the real thought leaders doing a session and you go in there or somebody else who figured something out was sharing that with them and somebody would ask a question right in the group and and you'd say oh, that was a good question i'm gonna go find that guy right and so uh, as the sessions broke up and people were in the hallways and such um 
between between you know times and sessions, you'd go find that person and you'd have a conversation. It was like, I, I'm not prone to do that kind of stuff. I, I I'm not Chris, right? Chris has never met a stranger. I mean, he he can just talk to anybody and make you feel comfortable. You know, I I, I play I play an extrovert sometimes when I'm doing training, but. But you know, it's a takes takes a lot of effort for me to you know to go talk to strangers, one on one, you know that kind of thing. But it was, um, but that was sort of sort of what happened was uh, uh, it created this um, atmosphere that 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 lingered. So the next conference was in San Diego in the same. And although uh, they did a better job of planning and having uh, six seven hundred people or something like that, I don't know. Um, that that um sort of the way that's how it, it happened and, you know they i mean people just went and found each other they you know they had the social events and uh the um you know the area where the vendors are and and, and bars of course you know and people would go in there and talk and just you know exchange ideas and that's that's sort of how a lot of us got our uh you know our, our 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 value set, our principles, our and even then techniques about how do you, how do you do this? Uh, because almost everybody had come out of the workshop world, and so we knew that, and um, and we were trying to figure out how we could do this new different thing, right? And the beauty of it was, uh, so at Elisa Ribbon Resources where I was, we had we had the grant two two times, um, and in the first year. When we were applying for the grant, um, we said, "Well, how many people do you think we should we should say we're going to find jobs?" Right? Well, we've never done this before, so so we didn't want to aim crazy high, but we didn't want to lowball it, right? So I said, "Well, one a month sounds pretty good, right? How's that?" And so we figured it'd be ten because of when the grant started. At the end of that first year, that was twenty nine. And then, and then, so we got to the to the next year of the grant, and and he said, "Well, what are we going to do this time?" I said, "Well, we ain't doing 29 because I think we were lucky, you know." So, so um, let's say let's say 15, 15 more. <laughs> and of course, yeah, it was 50. And and so and so, well, Bob, so I'm was, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm a little surprised uh, that uh, so you must have been a little more uh, pessimistic uh, as a as a younger younger person you know <laughs> sky's the limit when it comes to customized employment now well you know i don't know if i was pessimistic chris i just i just we didn't have we didn't have the um you know we didn't have the capacity we were building the capacity you know and and we and um we really didn't know what to do <laughs> seriously and the beauty of it was this was at the time when in minnesota they they had just created something called Rule 38, which was right. the DTNH licensing rule. Right. Prior to that, day training places, which were called DACs, uh, were really licensed under a um, like a daycare rule. Sure. So they created this Rule 38 to um, um, you know um, do uh, uh, you know the licensing stuff, but they really had no measure. Right. I mean, they didn't know what to do with supported employment because it didn't exist before. And so that was sort of a, a liberating kind of thing because, you know, there was no, it, I mean, there were constraints, you know, we still had vulnerable adult law and stuff like that, sure. still had to manage your money. But programmatically, it was new territory. Mm -hmm. You know, no one had been there before. Yeah. And so I think that we, we, and, and I'm gonna, we and collectively in the field, we got away with a lot of stuff that you could not do now because, you know, we got regulators and whose whose main job is to stifle innovation, and not and not and not foster it. So, so anyway, so those sorts of things sort of kind of happened. The grant in Minnesota lasted until 1991, and um, and. Um, when it ended, uh, you know, a lot of people who were part of that grant, who would go to those trainings, we continued to, I was at the POJA at the time, we would continue to host meetings and have people come, you know, and, uh, 
um, and we'd, we, you know, we'd share our, our stories with each other. But then we also thought about, man, you know, I really miss having all those really cool trainers come through here. How could we organize, because no, no one organization could afford any, anything like that. How could we pool our resources and do that? And that was the genesis of Minnesota APSI. Uh, Minnesota, an APSI, national APSI, um, launched the first, the idea of state chapters then. And, and we said, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. So we went to the conference in San Diego and began that process of, of um, creating uh, what was then called MAPSI. So was, was Minnesota one of the, uh, in the first sort of group of state chapters? Yeah. Yeah, and three, was, that the, was that the quote-unquote MAPSI watch so you're, you're holding yes. up for everybody there? there? it is. Oh, there. The wow. Watch. Wow. <laughs> Excellent. Great visual aid. An, ar an artifact. <laughs> Way to prepare. Way to have the artifacts. I love it. Yeah, Do you have you any go. scrolls or, or anything? Parchment? Do you have any scrolls or anything chiseled into stone for us? Or? Oh, no, I don't. I, I do have like a bunch that. of old newsletters, Something so like I'll share those with you guys sometime. But, but any, anyhow, so... So that was that was the uh, genesis of, of our state chapter, and um, so we had we had a you know the the um, paperwork and all that kind of stuff that we had to do to apply to be a state chapter was pretty simple and benign uh, back then uh, because again nobody knew what to do right and so there weren't a lot of uh, models to choose from and uh, so you know we we did all that so we're going to have a um, an organizational meeting where we had to elect officers and do all that stuff, right? And um, I was doing a, a training session uh, on uh, up up in International Falls, yeah, you know, up north. And uh, was it and, February? Uh, it was November. November. That's cold enough. <laughs> yeah, you bet it was. And um, and in the process of coming back, my appendix burst. And however, oh I didn't know this. I mean, I felt like I felt terrible, but the, the, the you know, it, it abscessed, which means that the, you know, bile or whatever didn't get into my body. It, it, it sort of stayed there, which was, oh, I probably goodness. would have died. I, yes, I really, might, you know, with that. And so, fortunate. so I had to go to the hospital because we're out around Thanksgiving, you know, so I missed out on Thanksgiving dinner and, um, and we're at the hospital here in Maplewood. And um, and so I had to stay there for a couple of days. And uh, Jackie Minarsik, who was the CEO at Kapoja at the time, came to visit me. And I said, um, how did it go? You know, how'd the meeting go? And she goes, well, I have some good news and some other news. <laughs> <laughs> I said, tell me the good news. <laughs> she said, well, it went really well. We had these people, we had folks we didn't even know that were great and all that kind of stuff. Okay, what's the other news? Uh, you got elected president. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, and I was telling Chris um, a couple of you know we were telling swapping stories and that that then became um, sort of a model for how we operated as Minnesota APSI. If you were on the board and you missed a meeting, you got a job, right? And it got to the point where people would call me and say, "Hey, I'm going to have to miss the board meeting." what's my job, you know, and it'd be like conference chair, you're the conference chair now, or right, right. you're the editor of the newsletter. I mean, just stuff like that. And it was, you know, it was tongue in cheek, right? But it was serious. <laughs> you had yeah. to do it. And, uh, and, and so at that time, there was no combined uh, membership. So you're either a national member, you could be a state chapter member without being a national member. And so what we did yeah, is if we held, if we held events, we would charge non-members $15 more than current members. And with that $15 more, you became a member. So at one point we had like 150, almost 200 members. And then APSI changed its um, approach to doing a combined membership. And that kind of dropped our membership off. But we, I think Minnesota APSI has rebounded fairly well over the years to do that so so anyway that's kind of the, the fast you know, yeah. story about cool. how how it how it happened well so much so much there and 
it's really, I think, you know, for anybody that, that might not know much about Minnesota APSI and, and national APSI, uh, and, and even those of us that, that think we do know more, uh, that just the information you've given us so far, Bob, is, is, uh, is like gold, you know, that it's, a, it's, it's really important as well as interesting uh, history, you know, so thanks yeah. for laying that out. And, and I was thinking about the, the way you were describing the conferences in the early days, how, you know, people just started to have conversations and you sort of realized um, these people, you know, think the way I think, you know, I remember the first national conference I went to and I was awestruck to see, you know, hundreds of people from around the country and around the world for that matter, who believed that people with disabilities should be working in the community, should be working in their own jobs, like everyone else should be making wages uh, that are also like their coworkers and, and people they work with. And, and to see that and feel that energy, um, you know, I, I think it was very similar to, to those early days because that's what I remember yeah. the most are the people I meet and the conversations I have. And I would always leave a national conference with a, a stack of cards from, uh, from my new friends from, you know, all over the place. Oh yeah. 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 And the other thing about it too, Chris, was that there was a, there was an air of humility about it. Nobody yeah. would tell you that they knew what to do. They would tell you that they're working on it, right? right? It's like, we're not there yet, but we're on the way, you know, we're doing it. And some people were further along than others, but people were, were happy to admit it. In fact, I, I, don't think I, I don't think I mentioned this to, when we talked with Dana, but the third conference in Baltimore, well, they, they, they created a, something called a, um, delegates council where their state chapter people would be on this council that would kind of advise the board. And so I was on that first delegates council. And, and as we we're talking, and then the guys in Minnesota APSI were talking, we noticed that at TASH, which wasn't a right, excuse me, wasn't a rival organization, was just different. And what does TASH it, stand for, Bob? It stood for, um, stood for the Association for the Severely Handicapped. Okay. You know, and um, and then, um, uh, but so much of TASH was academic. I mean, people who were doing master's programs and PhDs and all that, they would present their papers, you know, as the presentation. So it wasn't very exciting, uh, you know, and all that. And if you looked at the program, you know, the conference program, you looked at the presenter list, everybody had a, just a ton of letters behind their names. And so those of us in the trenches go, screw that, you know, yeah, we want yeah. to be an organization of people who do the work, you know, right. And so, so we created a petition and that, and, and, and presented it to Wendy Wood, who was the director at the time and the board, that there would be no letters behind anybody's names. Because if you were, if you were like me and, and the people that, that I associated with and worked with, uh, we didn't give a rip if you had a PhD. Can you do the work, right? Have you been there? Have, you know, have, you, have you experienced <laughs> right. you know, stuff that you're going to experience? And, and, that, you know, and that lasted for quite a long time. I think APSI has sort of uh, backtracked a little about that. And, uh, and I think it's because at one time one of the directors had a PhD. And, uh, and so, you know, there you go. But, um, but, but like Chris was talking about going to the conference and, and I would say, show me the program, right? I don't know if I did this for you. And I would highlight, go oh, see yes. this guy, go see her, go see, don't go there. That person doesn't know what oh, the hell yes. they're talking about, right? You know, and that kind of thing so that they could be exposed to people who could tell them, tell them the right stuff, right? Yeah. They could give them the good, the good thoughts. So that, that's sort of how um, a lot of that, um, that worked out. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a tradition that's uh, kind of continued uh, into my uh, my work as well. Uh, can you just tell us, uh, Take I'd like to take a few moments for you to talk a little bit about the challenges, you know, with supported yeah. employment, the idea of supported employment was was truly being born and practiced. What were some of the, the key challenges yeah. you, you ran into in the early days? 
Well, um, like I said, most of us had had cut our teeth in the shelter work system. So we knew that system. And one of the things that the shelter work system offers organizationally is an economy of scale, right? So you got one staff person who's supervising a work group of half a dozen people, right? And so in, in supported employment, even if you were doing an enclave or something like that, you were still reducing that ratio. Sure. And so that was one that, it, it, that, it, that you know, people say, well, this doesn't make any financial um, um, sense. And, and your reply, you know, our reply was sell your building, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, get, get rid of stuff and, 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 and invest your money in people. Sure. Um, so that was one. Secondly was, and probably more so than anything, Chris, was just a belief that people with disabilities could, you know, whatever, could do anything if you had the right support. And, and of course, you know, the naysayers would say, well, what about this person, you know, and they, they, they present you with the most extreme complication of disability you can imagine. Say, what are you gonna do with that guy? And, you know, reply was, I don't know, <laughs> you know, but the moment I say he can't, you know, then I need to quit. That's right. right. I need, you know, this is, this is not the, this is not the field for me. That's and, right. and, 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 it's and, you not know, a can't think field. About, no, it's not. And if you think about it now, um, you know, I, I mean, from 1986, 1985 until right now, think about the advances in technology that we've experienced, not to mention the stuff that my parents experienced in the fifties, you know, but we've experienced a ton just in the last you know, 30 some years. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so uh, who knows, right? You know, and I've always believed this and, and, and I have no evidence to prove it, but, but I believe it that people, even with the most significant uh, cognitive disabilities and what, that information is getting in. It's just not getting back out, right? Uh, in, in a way that, um, meet some some standard whatever that is right. so so the the challenge is how do you figure out how to how to get it out you know how to how to you know because like if you got somebody who's 50 years old and they've been you know in a you know in a pretty um like invalid state or whatever they've still been watching stuff you know they're still mm -hmm. experiencing stuff they know things you know um so we don't know what's in there mm -hmm. you know so that's been one yeah. of the kind of a driving thing. So, so that belief system is probably uh, primary. That's uh, why, you know, thing, sorry to interrupt you, but that, no, that's why it's always bothered me when, uh, and it still does when somebody says, well, somebody's age, you know, intellectual age is, is this, yeah. I, uh, first of all, I don't uh, believe in that, that, uh, that type yeah. of language or, or description, yeah. but at the same time, I don't know too many six-year-olds that have uh, 30 years of life experience. And, and so there's just no way you can, as, is. I just wanted to sort of reiterate your, your point that, yeah. that, you know, people have life experience and that, that counts for, uh, for more than we really know how to quantify. Well, and that, that mental age thing is just a made up number anyway. Absolutely. It's like IQ, some, some made up number. You know, um, if anybody here who's on the um, on the video um, knows who Mark Gold was, go read read his. Uh, he had a, one one of his books was called "Did I Say That?" And what he did was he talked about things he used to believe and now what he believes. Right, the, the sort of the crossover in thinking, which is something I experienced and a lot of my colleagues did too. You know, and and uh, and that was part of it was that believing that testing told you anything. You know that kind of stuff. So, so there was that. Um, the, you know, the the system too. I mean, like I said, we were getting away with stuff that we couldn't get away with now. Sure. Um, but you know, there was always this kind of um, waiting to get caught. <laughs> you know, thing they're going to catch us. Oh no, what's going to happen? And we weren't doing anything illegal. You know, we were just doing stuff that wasn't on the books. I mean, you know, right. wasn't on the in the in the lexicon of all that nonsense that they had that, that paperwork. Um, you know, what I always said is quality assurance things, um, um, certifications and that 
mean nothing. They mean nothing. What 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 happens is, um, can you do it? All right, can you can you do it? And there's really not many ways uh, academically that's going to teach you how to do it because yeah. what they settle on becomes obsolete really quickly. Sure. And in order to change curriculum, it's like a rigmarole, man, I'll tell you. Whereas we could be nimble, we could shift on the fly. We yeah. say, oh, that doesn't work anymore. Let's stop doing it, right? Or let's do this kind of thing. So, so those, those are some of them, Chris. I mean, sure. you know, uh, sure. at parents, parents too were, um, a, lot of, a lot of parents were really nervous about uh, their sons and daughters um, and feeling that, um, they, they weren't sure how safety was going to be, you know, what is safety. So those were some some of the stuff. And we had to address it. We really were stupid at the at the beginning. We tried to address it broadly. Yeah. And you can't, right? You got to address it individually, got to address it one at a time. And uh, that takes a lot of work. And that's another reason <laughs> of the barriers. It's, it's different kind of work. Right. By different kind of people, you know. So and it and it's and it's um, you know, for me who I've uh, been in the field now 24 years. Uh, what I've, I know, it's hard to believe. Uh, feels like just yesterday I, I met you and uh, I was in my 20s. <laughs> so, now it's in my 30s. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But the, um, uh, you know, one thing I've noticed is, uh, is, is, as there has been certainly lots of advances and, uh, you know, more, uh, more adaptation of the belief of, you know, integrated community-based employment, one person at a time, there still has always been the, the other side, uh, that, that doesn't, uh, you know, that, I don't know, is having a harder time letting go. So as we yeah. continue to see advancements, we've also continued not to see advancements, uh, right. which is, which is, you know, well, I guess interesting phenomenon, that's one word for it, but uh, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, on that, that note of growth, though, on that side of growth, uh, you know, when I did meet you, there was, you know, continuing, continued innovations and ideas and, and more of a more adaptation, maybe you can talk to us about some of those um, you know, uh, from, from the late nineties into the two thousands and, and, you know, maybe leading up to, uh, even the employment first, uh, you know, type of, of ideas yeah. that you were an integral part of. Well, um, you know, the thing, the thing was that while, while the supported employment grants were in place nationally, and that was from like 85 to 90, 91, that kind of thing. Uh, participation in supported employment went from nobody to about 140,000 people nationally. And when the grants ended, it stayed there. It didn't decline. It just didn't grow, right? What did grow was, was non-work uh, community stuff, like, you know, uh, sanding ducks or whatever the heck you do in a workshop. And, um, you know, that kind of stuff was, grew. And, and, you know, and I'm going to, and I'm not, I was a director, you know that Chris, and I was a sure. director of an agency and I was executive director of an agency. I was not popular among my peer group because what I would tell my peers is you guys are just lazy, right? You are intellectually and organizationally lazy. And so I don't have time for it. And <laughs> they were happy to say, see ya. <laughs> okay, all right, well, good. Now I get to keep my dues and I'll send people to training. But, um, you know, well, we, and, we and still I really love you. <laughs> I, no, I, I really do believe that. And, and there are some organizations sure. who, who are, uh, are not nationally, you know, they're, they're rare. They really are. I mean, there are people who are doing bits of it, doing parts of it, but they haven't gone all in, right? It's like Texas Holden, right? no, yeah. no all ends over there. And, um, and so that, that, so the nineties and even the, um, first part of, you know, the, the, the 2000s um, was uh, kind of a grind. There wasn't a lot of new stuff going on. Yeah. Um, technology was helping, you know, laptops and computers and things were exploding on the scene. Um, that, that was a big help. Um, uh, you know, the internet had not really blossomed yet. And so their email was not a thing. Um, sure. But, but so, um, 
so that 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 and also in the 90s particularly in the late 90s <clears throat> the employment rate particularly in minnesota was three percent unemployment rate was three percent which means it's full employment i remember that so you could just throw a dart somewhere at a, at a place and go get somebody a job I mean, they didn't stay in the job but you could do it right and and so um so we had that plus uh we the economy just exploded and people left, you know, staff left. They went, you know, say, I can make more money at, uh, you know, being a waitress and I can make more money doing this. And and, it's, and I don't have all that, you know, the angst and aggravation that you're gonna get from the work that we do. Um, you know, you get a lot of satisfaction, but you gotta balance it with the hard work. And so uh, and so what happened, and I know experienced it at Capote as director of training, is that, you know, our standards for who we hired changed. They really, they really lowered, and and so we had, you know, we wound up having a lot of people that we would not have hired, you know, five years ago, five years prior to that, or and, and even even some now that there's that ex, that experience is happening again, some of it because of COVID, you know, and creating the, you know, employment, um, you know, a, a conundrum that we're that we're all in. So, um, but but then, in, excuse me. we just moved along, right? And, you know, I took a job at community involvement programs. We built a, an employment program based on one at a time, regular wages, all the things that I believe, and had some really good people working there. Um, and uh, former APSI, Minnesota APSI presidents, mm -hmm. and really really good good folks who had good brains, you know, to figure stuff out, and. Um, you know, so we, so we moved along, and but yet it was still not. This wasn't what I was hoping for, right? I just thought, my gosh, you know, as here it is, we're 2016 or 15 or whatever, and we're no better off than we were in 2000, you know, in terms of numbers and all that. And so, I went to lunch with a couple of icons, um, John Alexander and and uh, Don Lavin, and we went out to lunch. And we're just having lunch and um, Don was getting more involved. He had sort of taken a, a hiatus, but now he was getting more involved. And I said, you know what would be great? So what if we invited just a bunch of people that we know, we trust, that can think about this stuff. And we pose the question, how can we move this forward? And how can we move this forward? Just like 150, so whatever, statewide, we'll just do that. How can we do this? And um, Don said, well, you know, I just came back from uh, something like that in Indiana, right. uh, and they called it an employment first thing. And he was there as a as a presenter, and he did that. And he talked a little bit about the format. Well, I'm from Indiana, and, and I know all those people in Indiana. And so I called him up, and I said, what'd you guys do? You know, tell us a little bit about it. And so not only did they tell us what they did, but they told us what they wish they had done, which was great, right? So we said, oh, well, okay, well, let's do that. And that's how Employment First was born in Minnesota, sure. and literally was the um, um, sort of the the comet that shot out of Minnesota that that, that influenced the rest of the country. They actually, wasn't talking about Employment First at all. They didn't even know what it was, mm -hmm. and and we didn't know what it was, but we knew it wasn't what we were doing. And so that's how Employment First happened. We had the Employment first, uh, first conference, and we mm -hmm. formed a coalition. I invited people that I thought would be really good planners, and uh, we're going to buy in. And we got support from the Medicaid Infrastructure Grant, Mary Alice Mowry. We had some support from the Department of Ed, James Payne, who said, I've got like $10,000 I need to spend. We <laughs> said, well, we can help you. <laughs> yeah. We can help you do that, you know. So we had, I mean, in the night in 2016, fifteen thousand dollars was like a fortune, you know. Absolutely, you know. And so we did it out at the Minnesota Arboretum. Yes, I and, was there. And, I remember. And and from that, we recorded everything that people said and tried to organize it. So yeah. I know Alex worked at organizing it thematically. Don started doing uh, uh, some of the uh, narrative. You know, my job was because I my. I live in a household of women who would correct me that I have to have good grammar and stuff like this. So I would be like the grammar guy, you know, to be sure that sentences made sense and those kinds of things. And we created the report and 
and so that was in June where we did this conference. In January, it was ready to go. And so we had a party at Chris's house, actually. It I was remember a, that. Like a coming out party, right? Yeah. And and we and we put the, a PDF of that employment first report on the Minnesota APSI website. And by the end of the week, it had been downloaded 5,000 times. Wow. And, and so we said, well, well, that's that's something we didn't expect, you know? Yeah. And so, and we sent it to every state, we sent it to every legislator, we, you know, uh, and that was kind of the, the thing. And, and so for me, you know, I have to admit it, you know, okay, I'm an old guy and all that kind of stuff is that the Dagon thing was my idea. <laughs> and nobody ever says, hey, thanks for that idea. No, that's okay. You know, I can live with it. I, I have other successes. In my hey, life. Bob. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that idea. <laughs> thanks, Chris. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So um, what else? That, that, and so that's how it would happen. And, and then, you know, uh, I'm sorry about customized employment emerged really uh, um, in, in the early 2000s. Um, you know, uh, right up 9-11 happened and, and it was the year before the Minnesota APSI, Minnesota APSI hosted the national conference. So nobody was traveling, nobody's just, and we just took a bath national organization on that. And, um, but at what was happening at that time was that at the Department of Labor, there was this conversation about customized employment. And what customized employment was, and the, you know, like the original guys like Mike Callahan, Rich Luking, those guys, they, they'd argue with me, but I don't care. You know, I've been around as long as they have. So, you know, and um, is that, it's, it's not supported employment on steroids. It's, it's what we envisioned as supported employment. One person, regular wages, regular businesses, you know, uh, and, and individualized support, whatever that meant. And, and so you couldn't have a sub-minimum. You could not have a group placement. You could not uh, have uh, somebody working in a place that was owned by a rehab facility. Um, you know, those kinds, so, so it, it, it kept the targets Pure, right? Whereas right. in supported employment, you could do sub-minimum, you could do groups and enclaves. Uh, you didn't have to have, there was no, um, you know, hour commitment about how many times, you know, stuff like that. And so, so that started happening. And, uh, and, and again, that made more sense to me. And so when I got to um, community involvement programs, uh, it was about that time in 2003, when I went, okay, I think we try to figure out how to do this. And fortunately, I was had was been friends with Carrie Griffin, yep. who was one of the preeminent uh, uh, minds in, in customized supported employment. And he and I were friends. And I said, "Hey, got anything you can send me? You know, that we can work mm -hmm. out." And and because of my having been nationally involved in a lot of different things, I knew a lot of people. Sure. And 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 so I would trade them. I would say, "You come and do a thing for my." team and I'll come and do one for you right so we bartered like that which um which was um again it was fun you know and uh uh Chris Chris <laughs> Chris came and did a thing for for us at CIP yep. drank an egg or something yeah. like that I don't know yeah. but um but yeah so anyway that that's sort of a condensed version of it you know and but um there's a lot a lot more detail there but if I get down to that detail we're we're done. Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll be done. And what, what Bob's alluding to everybody is, uh, uh, I had a former life, although I, I would certainly do it again. It's just not what I, <laughs> I, I market uh, so much anymore, but I was a motivational, inspirational speaker and I developed uh, a routine and, uh, Bob was uh, good, good enough in my early days when I was trying to really hone my craft, uh, to have me come out and speak to, to his organization there at CIP and, uh, I was, you know, experimenting with my openings and yeah, I, I did. Uh, I didn't actually drink the egg though. I just made it look like I was going to drink it. And then I put, yeah, put it down because yeah. Uh, yeah, I would just throw up all over the first row if I did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was a good ploy, Chris. It was a good, yes, it was thank, a good, thank, good I was, good, you know, I was all about getting your attention, uh, which is, which is business. key, which is key. Yeah. So, yeah. um, well, yes. And, and, you know, the, I just want to just go back, uh, real quickly and just, talk a little bit more about employment first, because that idea that you had uh, truly not 
and and the idea for a coalition uh, was what really took employment first and and made it more than just about one sector of people believing in this idea yeah. to to where we are now with an actual employment first policy in the state of Minnesota with a Department of Human Services that uses employment first languages or language and 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 you know sort of perpetuates that idea that yep. that truly employment should be you know what employment first says is that it should be the preferred the first uh and expected outcome yep. uh so people really with employment first people aren't opting into employment they're opting out of employment we should expect right. everybody should and can work and it changes our paradigm of how we look at our children. You know, ch children are children, and we should expect all of our children uh, yeah. that someday they will grow up and have jobs and and have lives and and full lives. Yeah, well, and you know, and I don't think there's going to be anybody here on this video. I know, I know you didn't, uh, and I sure as heck didn't have a conversation with my father where the notion that employment was an option was ever discussed. Right. Exactly. So he got, and he would get me jobs. He'd give me my, like my, one of my first jobs to get me out of the house because I was driving my mother crazy, you know. Yeah. So, so get out of here. Get you know, yeah. this fifteen-year-old, sixteen-year-old. Right. So we started early with that expectation. It wasn't about people with disabilities. It's about people, adults. That's what you're supposed exactly. to do. So, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I want I want to be sure that's clear. I did not invent employment first. I don't know who did, but I adopted those that term. To do what we were doing in minnesota right which launched right. like the sort of you know national thing so I, I don't want to take any credit for that i wish i had but i don't but you did invent the universe let's just be clear about that <laughs> well at least the one i'm in <laughs> uh, i i say the same thing about myself uh I've, yeah. I've i've got my own sky you know my that's for sure uh well you know we we are um Bob and I, you know, as is, is, uh, we've already told the audience, we've known each other for 27 years. Uh, we've collaborated in, in lots of different things, not not just work and in, in lots of different things. So we could literally go on for hours, I'm sure, with this discussion. Yeah. But let's just briefly talk uh, just to sort of uh, take us towards um, towards our end here today. What can we what do you expect? I'd really be curious to hear what your thoughts are are on customized employment, employment, uh, if you will, in general, uh, and services, you know, say for the next 10, 15 years, where do you see things going? Yeah, uh, well, I, I don't know that I can answer that part of it, the crystal ball part of it, but I tell you what it needs, uh, what I think it needs. It needs what it had back in the early 80s, and late 80s and early 90s, and that is leadership. And, and, and this stuff happened at, uh, ESR in Washington County because Ron Rucker wanted it to happen and he was in charge. It happened at Kaposia because Jackie Minarczyk was in charge and she made it happen. It happened in a lot of different, it happened at CIP um, because I was in charge. And, and so leaders have to emerge, right? Leaders have to, um, can't sit on the sidelines, right? right. You know, you've got to get, you got to get in there and you got to, and you got to, um, and so that's part of it. And because I believe that this is not a bottom up thing. Because um, the bottom has has very little power, unless it's completely organized. And, and unfortunately, it's not. So it has to be a top down thing. We, you know, one of the things that I've always believed, and, and it drives me crazy is that all this, all this effort and all this uh, focus is on direct service people, and they are doggone it important. They don't get paid enough, they have a hard job to do. But it's focused on them with certifications and CESP and Acre and all this stuff. There is not a single certification for an executive director. There's not a single certification yeah. other than a degree for a financial director, right? So, or you know, so why is that, right? When the people who are calling the shots, and I've encountered them both in my career as a director and as my career as a consultant they, they're just not going to do it you know they're just it, it, it challenges their paradigm and they're just not going to do it so so i think that grow as a leader and get into a position where you can make something happen 
and and um, um, you know, um, and I'm not saying don't try to change something that 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 that's that's really set in its ways. It's just going to take take a lot longer to do that. Sure. So you know, um, and same with people. You know, work with work with the willing. When we formed the Employment First Coalition, Chris, we called it a coalition of the willing. Yeah. So so it's not about even really seriously in terms of doing this, it's not about skill, it's about will. And if you've got the will, you'll learn the skill. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to be, you know, Jesse Jackson-like here, you know, but, mm -hmm. but I'm saying this, that's the way it really is. And, and you can learn stuff, you know. Uh, when we hired people, we always used to say, we hire who's, we'll teach them what, yeah. right? That's right. And, and so we wanted to know that, what made that person tick, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's what I think, Chris. It just, I, there, yeah. I think there needs to be an effort. I think Minnesota actually can play a huge role yeah. in developing the future leaders, but not do it with some formula, right? Yeah. Like, like hire, bring in some guy who says, I have got the leadership training. Run away from that guy, okay? Really. Uh, and find somebody who's got dirty hands, metaphorically, right? Yes. Find somebody who's, uh, you know, um, got calluses. That's who you want to talk with, right? Yeah. And and uh, and 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 build from there. And anything I could do to help you all do that, I am happy to do as a mostly retired person. <laughs> <laughs> Find something to do, right? But but still very uh, vibrant and influential, and uh, you have so many great ideas, Bob. Yeah, you know. I agree. I mean, it just takes, you know, it's, it's one person at a time and it takes one leader at a time. And, and the more, uh, the more leaders, the more quote unquote, uh, doers we have. And, uh, the more, uh, people saying the right things it only creates more opportunities for, uh, uh, for people to, to get truly good services and get good jobs. And, and yeah. I do see, you know, as somebody who is very much, I guess you could say in the trenches as a leader, uh, ship in a leadership position with an organization that believes in in employment first and customized employment. Uh, there are starting to, uh, you know, I am starting to see other organizations more than than I saw 20 years ago. We still need more. Uh, we still yeah. need more. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. to to really uh, to make employment first a reality. We need as many people we can that that uh, truly believe in people and can help people get to those places because it's still you know when people come to me to learn about our services for example um, it still makes me sad that so many people truly haven't even heard of these concepts of oh wow my son or daughter can have a real job or the individual themselves telling me wow nobody's ever said that to me before so yes yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing, Chris, is among that leadership development stuff is the concept of a cohort, right? It actually became a cohort. It was a national, international cohort of people who knew each other, right? And could talk to each other. I could call any of those guys up. They could call me up and we could talk, you know? And, and locally, you know, that, that cadre was smaller. Sure. There weren't as many people in that. Um, there were some, and like you said, it's it's growing some, you know, uh, about time. You know, it's growing some, and yeah. but yeah, that's and and I'd I'd want to thank you and Kapoja obviously for your continued, you know, unwavering commitment to it. I think it's um, it's really something to see, and uh, and I I I am proud to have been a, a small part of it. So. Well, well, thank you, Bob. And, you know, thank you for your time here today with our, our Minnesota APSI video podcast. And, and thank you for those kind words. You know, when I came into the field, uh, going back to what you said at the beginning, it was a happy accident. And I happened to come to work for an organization that had uh, tremendous leadership and tremendous principles and beliefs. And, one one thing that I always remember uh, that I heard you say in a training it was a uh, it was when we worked together at Kaposia and you were doing uh, just a training on you know job development is probably what we were calling it at the time um, but uh, I was a job developer and and I just remember you saying to the group 
Um, okay, so what do you think is the most important tool you can have uh, as a job developer? What's the most important tool you can have? And um, I'm not sure if any of us uh, shouted out the right answer or the answer right away, but I remember you saying the most important thing, and you said this earlier, is to believe. And, and I have used that dogma, uh, or I have repeated that dogma many times with our employees today. You know, whenever I meet with a new employee that we hire, I tell them that story. I, I talk about uh, how, you know, the most important thing is to believe that you're going to learn all these, how to dot these I's and cross these T's and all the regulation stuff that you're talking about, Bob. But the most important thing is to believe. And, and that's, you know, at Capoja and with APSI, the, the first and foremost is that we believe in people, uh, that all people should be treated with dignity and respect. All people have value. All people have a place in the working world so yeah. you know uh thank you for for that thank you for all your years of uh of friendship and inspiration uh and I, can, I can speak on behalf of so many uh people that i know i could literally just start rattling off names of people that you've influenced that are in leadership roles you know uh big time roles and 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 trying to change the world and um you know so so just thanks again and thank you to the audience for listening and yep, for, for having for me coming in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and y'all just, uh, this is Chris and, uh, Davies and on behalf of Bob Nemec, we are, we're signing off and I just want to remind everybody out there once again, that if you believe it, you can achieve it. There you go.